It was once the poster child of Web 2.0, but now social media is losing its luster. We're trusting it less, and the same can be said for search engines as well. It's a special edition of the show with exclusive audio from the launch of Edelman's 2018 Trust Barometer. Here's episode 17 of Sideload. Hello and welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman London. Today we're delving into the prestigious Edelman Trust Barometer and asking how much faith we have in the government, business, media and technology to do the right thing. To carry out the survey, we spoke with 33,000 people across 28 countries. We recently held a panel discussion at Edelman to launch this year's Trust Barometer and we had some high profile guests to do it, led by Edelman's UK CEO, Ed Williams. In fact, we're starting our coverage of the event with an overview of the findings from Ed. The first really big headline I want to talk about this morning is the complete lack of trust in social media companies in this market, which you touched on this. Less than a quarter of people in the UK now trust social media for news and information. This is a new low. Uh, Social media platforms, the companies behind them are blamed for the distribution of extremist content, the failure to prevent cyber bullying, not doing enough to stamp out illegal or unethical behavior. And let's face it, this has been coming for a while. In recent months, the same concerns have been expressed by the likes of Barack Obama, the Duke of Cambridge, heads of GCHQ, the National Crime Agency, all points that have seemingly fallen on deaf ears. The result is that Britons, I would argue, have had enough. Not only in trust in social media is it a new low, but a majority of people now support much tougher regulation. The charge that social media companies provide the fuel for fake news stories is resulting in half of people saying they're concerned about being the victims of hoaxes online. And even higher numbers saying they don't know how to tell the difference between good journalism and rumour and falsehood. Now, whilst it's true that people, by and large, still value social media when it comes to staying in touch, reaching loved ones, and for the ease in which they can share information, most now don't see it as a societal good. And the young are as unhappy as the old about this. And they're voting with their feet. One in 10 young people told us that they left the Facebook platform over the last year. It's about 12% of 16 to 18 year olds who say they've, they've actually come off Twitter. Now, as trust in social media sinks, there is, as Richard said, a spike in trust in traditional media sources to levels we haven't seen since about 2012. 61% of us now say we trust newspapers and broadcasters. It's a 13-point jump year on year. Now, alongside this, there's been a significant rise in the credibility of experts, that is to say, professional journalists, analysts, technocrats, academics. Now, what could, what could explain this? I mean, we'll talk about it on the panel, but perhaps it is a rejection of the madness of the mob and a return to the wisdom of village elders. It's too early to say whether this is a permanent change, a permanent shift, but it's a very interesting phenomenon to watch. What's clear, though, is the media has the mandate from the British public to educate people on important societal, political, and economic issues, to be the guardians of information quality, if you like. 
But look, the media faces challenges too. A third of us are saying that they are accessing news media less than they were a year ago. One in five of us is saying they are now actively avoiding it. Richard's trainer is obviously one of them. And what drives people's desire to switch off from news consumption? It's too depressing. It's seen as one-sided or biased. Conspiracies abound as to what stories get shown and which don't. The lack of trust in the veracity of news and information appears to be having a negative effect on our consumption, happens, consumption habits too. Only 6% of people now consider themselves part of what we would describe as the informed public. That is people who consume political or business news several times a week or more. In the seven years of us looking at this group, the informed public, we've never seen this metric fall below 11% and it's now at 6 and given the issues we face in the 21st century, it should be a real concern that we are becoming a nation of news skimmers and news avoiders. So, some big findings to chew over this morning. But it's specifically the fate of social media companies, the resurgence of trust in traditional media and experts that I want to explore first with the panel. You know, combined, these social media companies enjoy market saturation they employ some of the brightest minds on the planet and have unlimited financial resource, deep pockets, huge power, big capabilities. Yet what the critics say we hear from them is all too often, look, the problems are just too big. We're doing all we can. We're running as fast as we can. We're trying to employ more people, but just technology moves too quickly. These are familiar refrains. But our data suggests the problem is there exists now a majority view strongly held that the small steps and incremental change is no longer enough. An overcorrection might now be the only answer. So with that, let's turn to our panelists. Sarah Sands in the middle, former editor of the Evening Standard and now editor of the Today programme. To her left, Matt Garahan, the FT's global media editor who recently came back to London after a decade reporting in America. He escaped. Uh, Janine Gibson, to my left, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed UK and former deputy editor of The Guardian and editor of Guardian.com. Next to her, Kevin Maguire. Oh, no, there you are, next to Sarah. Political uh, journalist, commentator and associate editor of The Daily Mirror. And Ronan Harris, MD of Google in the UK and Ireland. So I think if we could just welcome the panel first. So, uh, Matt, can I turn to you first? I mean, you've written about and thought about this issue around social media regulation, the challenges that they face, um, and the extent to which they kind of duck the challenge for, for, for some time. Are you surprised that it's kind of caught up with them in this market, these problems? No, not at all. I think um, I'm surprised it's taken this long to catch up with them. I think it's interesting, and we spoke a little bit about this last night, it's interesting that it's happening here in the UK that this, this, this rising uh, lack of trust, lack of faith in, in, these, in these companies. I think to, to a lesser extent, that's the case in the, in the US. Um, I think the press here have done a, a really good and sharp job of highlighting the, the shortcomings of, of some of these companies and with extremist content and with um, lack of care being taken in fake news. Um, but I, I, I sort of struggle to wonder what can be done about it. I think uh, 
the Germans have taken a lead on it with, um, you know, they can, they, with fines for, for fake news. Obviously, fake news is, that isn't removed within a few hours. Um, I think that's something which other countries should look at and are likely to look at and explore. Um, but ultimately, you have to, you know, as you said, these companies are so big and so powerful. Um, even the prospect of paying a, a minimal fine um, over fake, over you know, a piece of fake news or lack of action on fake news or fake propaganda isn't really going to move the needle much in terms of how they they, they see themselves and how they, they do their business. Kevin, you know Westminster incredibly well and the inner workings of government and policy making. Are you? Pessimistic, like I think I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, Matt, you're saying you are. Are you pessimistic that government isn't going to be able to step in? So it's, it'll be down to self-regulation. Yeah, it's always now uh, a very cheap and easy clap line for uh, an MP or a minister to attack social media companies, demand something must be done, pick up on jihadi videos in particular, beheadings, why aren't they taking down quicker? And I think the social media companies, the platforms, uh, were, were quite rightly vilified. At the end of the day, they're big businesses. They want to give a, a shiny moral purpose for their existence. But in fact, it's all about making money. They're worried about uh, their, their shareholders and they didn't put in the people, the human content, to take down those videos and make, uh, and, and make calls, and they get panned for it. How you act, well, it's very difficult, I think, as a, as a nation state, perhaps we're going to get to the heart of the Brexit argument uh, here, but you can see countries build, uh, building and working uh, together, the, the European Union, in a position to take on these big companies. We've seen now Apple and Ireland and the, what's, what's quite clearly tax avoidance, uh, which they're being, being caught, <coughs> caught up on. An individual country is pretty powerless against these these international companies, but something like the European Union, China, it's China itself. Although there's there's great uh, censorship issues there, you you can take them on, and in the end, they can they can be shamed, and you can come up with legislation. Now there is a thirst. I mean, Amber Rudd always gets caught up on WhatsApp and doesn't quite understand encryption, and so, and so on, which is a bit worrying for a home uh, for a home <laughs> secretary. But ne but never nevertheless, I think there is a political will because there's a public demand and it's an easy political point for them to score. The point, the point is that these, these yeah. I mean, you know, the, the DCMS is currently looking into the, um, uh, the effects of uh, Russian interference in, in the Brexit referendum on, on, on Facebook and other platforms. And they've been pulling their hair out for the last sort of three, four months trying to get a response out of, yeah. out of Facebook in particular on, on the extent of Russian interference. And I think, I think deadlines were set you know, sabers were rattled, and Facebook sort of gave it a big shrug and didn't bother. I mean, these companies are transnational and sort of beyond the reach of individual governments, um, unless some sort of coordinated Europe-wide action is, is taken. But presumably, Sarah, um, politicians look at what's... I mean, you mentioned Germany. Germany's really interesting. So Ned's D, I think it's called Net's DG is the piece of legislation. And even the threat of bringing legislation in resulted in Facebook hiring 1,200 new members of staff to really focus on and police the content. And they removed, just before legislation, tens of thousands of fake accounts. So something happened. They, you know, the, the shrug just wasn't going to work in Germany. Mm. Do you think for UK politicians, they'll look at the kind of German model, which is a fairly kind of blunt instrument around fines, or do you think the view will be we need a slightly more sophisticated approach here? 
I think reputation matters. Um, matters um, to something like the BBC, which to being a trusted source is an absolute sort of first principle. You always know that you can't muck about with that. Mm. Um, I would have thought for the social media companies, um, they're feeling a lot of heat. Actually, I, I agree. I think the newspapers, you know, seen as a sort of rough beast, um, but they, you know, there is a kind of instinct for the truth, and they, you know, if if if, um, if someone's not quite being um, straight. They can feel that I would love to see those um, big tech companies um, um, actually engaging more sort of publicly. I do think the fact that, that the sort of um, that, that, that fortress mentality has to go. You know, one thing about the Today programme is that it's, um, you know, its purpose, actually, as we were talking earlier, of, of shared facts, object, objective discourse, experts, you know, above all, you're holding power to account. And the sort of frustrating thing is seeing um, that, that um, that you, it, it's harder to do with the tech companies. That is, you can drag in a government minister, but you can't get the the tech companies to engage. And I think that's a, I think that may be a discussion going on internally mm. um, with the tech companies of how far they need to engage. But but I think they do. You know, that there's a, there's a a lot of good they do. And it may be that there's a sort of, you know, I always think that you if you if um, if you're going through a, a sort of confusion or, a, or or turbulence, always go back to sort of founding principles or first principles. And I think. You know, one thing with Facebook is that it started as um, as a um, conversation between friends, mm. and that may be that it's you know it's strayed too far from its original purpose, and it makes sense in that way. Also, makes sense um, um, being able to do that in non-democratic countries. And it was a good article today, I think, by Emily Bell, suggesting that they may retreat from from that in the in the sort of panic. So just just. Um, I think, you know, stay calm and engage, I would say. I think the original mission statement was move fast and break things, wasn't it? So one can say they've definitely achieved that. that mission. Um, Janine, it's double-edged though, right? Because at the same time, uh, for digital media businesses, professional journalism, the, the likes of which you lead, actually social media is a good thing in terms of actually getting content out there and amplifying and reaching audiences. Do you, are you worried that there might be a kind of knee-jerk reaction to this? So, there's a lot of things going on here, and I don't think uh, traditional media is any less reliant on social media platforms these days to, uh, to distribute their message and to amplify the stories in their journalism. Um, what's, what's happening with Facebook and uh, Google and Twitter is a sort of uber moment where having uh, rejected for a, a substantial period of time that they were in the publishing business uh, they're going to have to come they are having to come to terms with the fact that they, they are in the publishing business and it's a bit like uber saying we don't employ the drivers well you are responsible for the drivers we 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 call you up and you send the drivers to our house we engage with the app so there's a very similar thing going on for all the tech companies, which is that the actual business that they're in, as opposed to the one they'd like to pretend to be in or where they pay tax, is becoming um, uh, very apparent to everybody. And then you're going to have to take responsibility for it. And Facebook's initial response uh, is particularly brave because what they've said is we're going to turn down news on our platform in order to deal with fake news, really. Um, which is just going to piss off a lot of journalists because they've become quite dependent on your platform in order to distribute and amplify um, their stories. So having sort of picked a fight with the Murdoch um, operation over advertising and sort of picked a fight with the politicians by not turning up to any of the select committees that they've been summoned to, they've now sort of picked a fight with the whole of the rest of the journalism industry as well by going, we're not going to distribute your stories on our, fake new on our news feed. Um, so they're in, a bit of a, they're in a bit of a pickle. 
and I don't quite know who their allies are. And I agree with Kevin and Matt to the extent that if a lot of nation states who are quite concerned about fake news and the power of the tech companies get together now and say we are going to regulate them, that, that is, a, that is a, a real possibility. And for all the times that we think we're a bit powerless and we can't do anything about big tech companies, I think Mario Monti took down Microsoft. You know, he did, in the end, just sit there in Europe and go, I'm just going to regulate you. Um, and it was very effective. And presumably, the problem as well with the initiative announced on Friday by Mark Zuckerberg, which is to say that the users are going to be judging the trustworthiness mm. of the content, it's sort of missing the point because, I mean, as we've seen in our research this year, two-thirds of people don't feel confident they're able to tell the difference be between professional content and the other stuff. Or, or perhaps don't want to, yeah. one way or the other. Um, when you see, I'm interested in the, the nuances of the trust. Um, academia is more trustworthy. Um, businesses and CEOs somehow feel, feel they are being more held to account. That's, that's encouraging. And, and individual journalists who can hold standards. I feel like there needs to be a kind of independent kite mark of journalism. We talked about this in the Reuters survey earlier this year. Excuse me if you heard that one. But I, I, I feel like an independent thing that says this is how journalism yes. can be produced in a way that's, you know, that, that says we could do it now over a cup of coffee. Sarah, Sarah and I could sit here and come up with a list of 500 organisations that you can take to the bank. It's very hard for Facebook to adopt that. But um, academics and, uh, and Charlie Beckett there, he's the answer. He can do it. So a combination of Charlie and, and you and Sarah will get this cracked in the next hour. <laughs> this is very good. Uh, so, uh, so, Relatively. Ronan, turning to you, are you having an Uber a moment? Google. No, um, I was uh, very interested to see the separation, <coughs> excuse me, the separation in trust between social media platforms and search engines. <coughs> in times of uncertainty, we see people increasingly ask more questions, right? So if I don't know what's going on, I have more questions in my mind, and we see people turning to Google to ask those questions. Uh, <coughs> our, business, uh, hasn't, our, our business mission hasn't changed from when it uh, was first designed 20 years ago. It's about organizing the world's information, making it universally accessible and useful. And uh, that also applies to news content. I think it's great that people are now turning to uh, 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 journalists and experts in increasing numbers to look for those answers. Uh, the job that we have to do is to make sure that uh, those uh, uh, recognized experts achieve prominence. I think this question of fake news, which has really been a buzzword of the last uh, year in particular, um, no thanks to the uh, President of, uh, in no small thanks to the President of the United States, um, this question of what is fact and what is news is really, really important. So we've been doing a lot of work with uh, NGOs and third party organizations like Full Fact and Fact Check to make sure that uh, as articles get published online, that they can be verified. And to uh, the point you raised a moment ago, we're also doing uh, work with an organization called the Trust Project, which is a, a, a collection of news organizations to identify what are the signals that you can pick out uh, in a news publisher that can talk to the veracity uh, and the authenticity of that news publisher. And we've moved from a day where, you know, 20 years ago when Google started, <coughs> we would get our newspaper in the morning and we would listen to our broadcast that evening. Today, we take a phone out of our pocket. We look at 150 times a day. And we've got a hugely fragmented set of sources that we rely on for news. I think that's 
good thing that people can get opinion from different places. Our job is to make sure that uh, it is trusted, it is experts that people can rely on, and they can get answers to those questions that they have in times of uncertainty. So let me ask you about the regulatory question, because of course, uh, YouTube, part of um, Alphabet, uh, is, is fast becoming one of the kind of biggest broad broadcasting machines in the world. Yet, I mean, I can, you know, uh, as you, you know, I come from a background of um, broadcasting in this country. Yet traditional broadcasters in the UK are subject to an incredibly uh, strict licensing regime, the type of content you can show, the balance and impartiality that you need to inject, uh, things like the watershed and so on and so forth. Um, do you think in the end you're going to lose the battle around regulation to the extent that really you can put anything up within you know, obviously not illegal content. Sure. So it's very important to understand that YouTube is an open platform. And what that means is that if any of us take a video in here at the moment, we can post it on the platform and we can share it with our family and friends or indeed thousands of people, as I'm sure this is being viewed by at the moment. Uh, that openness is what has enabled uh, 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 tens of thousands, millions of people to become publishers of their own stories and their own interests on that platform. It's also meant that with any open system, you have people who come along and they use it for nefarious purposes. Um, the law applies to YouTube in that if illegal content is found online, as soon as it's recognized, it must be taken down. Mm. The laws of the land around uh, that apply within the UK uh, on bad content also apply. Um, what we've got to do is rapidly accelerate the rate at which we can identify and take that down. And let me talk about extremist content, if I may, for one second. So it, we were. It was highlighted to us uh, earlier this earlier uh, last year that we need to do a better job. There had been a rapid increase in the volume of this content that had appeared online. We have applied now uh, a significantly increased amount of people on this uh, issue, as well as technology, and we've moved from. We've moved from a point earlier on last year to the end of the year where over 90% of this extremist content is being identified uh, and flagged by the technology. Uh, so that's before human flaggers have to review it and pull it down. So the what rate at which these new areas of nefarious activity pop up uh, and at which we uh, can apply people and then technology to identify and take down is uh, increasing very fast. And I think will continue to be uh, a significant area of work for us. So this is that you're going to keep focusing on this because presumably you, you, are, you can understand the fact that people will say, look, I look at UK channels and the audiences for some of their shows are actually smaller than the audiences for some of your YouTube channels, yet they have a very, very strict compliance regime and you have no compliance regime whatsoever. But of course, no illegal content. Sure. So again, I think it's this question of uh, having an open platform that allows any of us to go and to create some content and to publish it and put it out in the world. There's an incredible uh, creative community in the UK who have been able to express themselves on a platform like YouTube, create global brands, uh, and make themselves very successful. And not just on YouTube, they've diversified into other <laughs> platforms as a result. So again, I think democratization of uh, uh, content and creativity, giving people a voice, is a really great benefit of technology. And we need to work really hard to protect the openness of that platform to make sure that the uh, uh, bad players don't get a foothold and that we uh, eliminate that type of activity. Matt, you want to come in? Ronan, when you, when you, I mean, it is a platform, but you, it's yeah. also an advertising platform, and you guys share in the advertising when YouTube channels 
sell advertising, when, regardless of what the what the channels are. Infowars. We spoke about this again the other night. You know, a notorious kind of conspiracy right wing channel. There's two and a half million subscribers. Lots and lots of advertising. You guys share in that, and yet you don't take any responsibility for the for the output. Um, and the content, so, as, as a publisher would, because you say that you're not, you're not the publisher. So I, th I think it's important to distinguish between two different things. So we are not arbiters of free speech. Uh, and I think uh, I'm not sure many people in this room would vote for an international tech company to become an arbiter for free speech. We want to create an open platform that respects the laws of the land so that if you have a voice or an opinion, you can show up and you can have that voice or an opinion on the platform. Um, I think the question of advertising is separate, right? So we need to have very clear water between what is uh, free speech content and the content that brands are happy to appear against. We need to make sure that we give them the controls to identify and select the uh, content they want to appear against. And we need to make sure that those controls are watertight. Um, we had instances, uh, uh, as was highlighted in uh, early last year, that the uh, question of extremist content, we hadn't been uh, identifying and capturing it, and that some of the controls uh, uh, were not strong enough for advertisers. So we've worked really hard over the course of the last year, uh, and we continue to work hard. You'll have seen a bunch of announcements around how we've made big changes to the uh, uh, the content creators who are allowed to monetize. We've made big changes to the, but uh, in raising the thresholds against where advertising can appear. So, you know, the question about are we working hard? Are we taking these challenges for granted? Absolutely not. We're investing heavily in it. If we don't maintain the trust in our ecosystem, and remember the trust in our ecosystem is between users, all of us who show up and want to search for that how-to video that we get the content we want and we're not surprised by what we see, uh, the uh, content creators who want to be able to uh, uh, publish their content online, and the advertisers who create the uh, monetary incentives for that ecosystem to work. If we get that balance wrong, the trust in the ecosystem evaporates, and then what you see is people will move off our platform and they'll go to other places. Ronan Harris from Google there ending the discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sideload and don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch, email sideload at edelman.com. But no episode of Sideload would be complete without a sneaky look at the previous podcast. We're going to end this week with a clip from our discussion about the role of government in tech innovation. See you next time. It tends to be a situation that technology moves a lot faster than, um, than politicians and definitely a lot faster than parliament. Uh, and it's uh, having wide impacts on society. And what we've seen uh, over the past sort of nine to 12 months is that the government's really decided that it does want to try and get, get to grips with this, um, making sure that kind of the same rules apply to people online as offline, uh, and that uh, particularly with regards to internet safety, that Britain is one of the best places in the world to do that. There's also uh, what's just over a year, or coming up to a year uh, since the government published its digital strategy, which sought to take a look at this thing in the round. So not just internet safety, but everything from connectivity to data, to how do you uh, harness technology for businesses, and how do you make sure this is the best place in the world to start and grow a digital business? So it's definitely something that's on the government's uh, on the government's mind, on the government's agenda, and something that they know they need to be uh, they need to be on top of.